Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the action needed to curb and adapt to the extreme weather that climate change is already delivering. Sources today include The Bradcast, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, The Majority Report, Who, What, Why, Today Explained, and Vox, with additional members-only clips from Counterspin and a speech from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So in one sense, I know that you, like us, have been warning about exactly this for a long time. Is it still difficult to wrap your head around today, nonetheless? It is. I think that you know, while my expectations might have been for some of these records, um, everything, everywhere, all at once is kind of how it feels mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels that way as a reporter. It feels that way as just a person on Earth. <laughs> um, you know, the global records were not something that I had expected to jump out this early in July. Mm-hmm. Um, the peak is usually later in July towards early August. It's pretty much a done deal uh, that July will be the hottest July on record and most likely the hottest month uh, that we've seen since records began. Mm. Um, But the extremes aren't in themselves surprising. What is becoming very clear though, is the shortened window between them. So, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, uh, New York state, got hit really hard with flooding from uh, the left from the remains of hurricane Irene in 2011. Mm -hmm. These are the areas that just got hit and are still getting hit right now at at this hour. Um, The uh, heat waves that we're seeing in the Southwest, we know already were made at least five times more likely and more severe uh, due to climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's just as they're ramping up and you might say, well, Arizona is a pretty hot place. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, (laughs) but it's not typical for Phoenix to make a run at 120 degrees during the day Mm -hmm. and stay in the low to mid nineties at night. Like that is a a public health threat for them. It is a public health threat uh, in terms of the temperatures they're expecting in Las Vegas um, and in Mexico, which, which we might be not not be thinking about, but Mm -hmm. the heat dome is is really cresting over Mexico once again, um, likely posing a severe danger to people trying to illegally cross the border. Mm. Um, You know, Florida, looking at, at some of these observations, the, the ocean temperatures around Miami, around the Florida Keys are in the 90s yeah. right now. Yeah. That's just bizarre. And and somebody had, uh, a meteorologist who I follow posted a map, just looked at ocean temperatures around the United States right now compared to where they normally are in September. Mm-hmm. So in September is when you get you know, when, when the concerns about hurricanes really start peaking, uh, ocean temperatures, because they have a bit of a lag time taking in the heat over a longer period during the, the summertime, mm-hmm. that's when they usually peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now they're hotter than they normally would be in September. So everybody's just kind of thanking the fact that we don't have a tropical storm or hurricane coming into this area right now, mm-hmm. because if we did, one of those factors would heavily favor rapid intensification Mm -hmm. and um, a a serious problem. Now, it doesn't guarantee one in a month or two. Mm -hmm. It just means one ingredient is there in spades. Well, the the ingredient Uh, of the the warmer water, a storm comes over with that kind of warmer water, that means we're going to essentially, uh, we are very, we're much more likely to have a huger, wetter storm. Is that uh, the proper way to describe it? Yeah, I mean, we've noticed this, the peer-reviewed literature shows that that hurricanes are becoming, there are more frequent high-end storms than there used to be. There's more frequent instances and bigger jumps in rapid intensity Mm -hmm. uh, increases over a short period of time. We've seen that with a number of storms uh, in the past couple of years, uh, and not just storms that have affected the U.S., but in other ocean basins as well. Um, and we've seen storms becoming water. We, you know, the, the poster child for that is, is Hurricane Harvey in, mm-hmm. in Houston, um, which dumped around 660 inches of rain on that city. Um, but, but many storms are leading to inland flooding disasters now that are worse than they were before. The rainfall in, in the past two days over New York State and Vermont, what, one way to think about it is this particular storm, which is like this mix between something you might see in the wintertime mm-hmm. 
and a feed of tropical moisture coming off of this mm-hmm. warmer than average Atlantic, mm-hmm. it's del- delivering about a, a season's worth of rain in the course of two days. Uh, I, which I know it's just mind boggling. And I, you know, I was going to ask you, well, how unusual are these records I, I, that were breaking all over the place? I think you've already answered. They're quite unusual, but, but why has something changed here? Uh, Andrew Friedman, or, or are we just at a particularly bad moment with summer heat and a new El Nino, uh, you know, now uh, difficult to not notice, or in fact, have we reached, as many scientists seem to be suggesting, some sort of a tipping point, uh, as far as you can tell? Uh, what do we make out of what seems to be a pretty radical uh, change, even from last summer, which was also terrible, by the way? Yeah, I mean, last summer, um, I think it was the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a advocacy group and mm-hmm. scientific research group, um, labeled it the danger season. Um, and, and that kind of got, got taken up by mm-hmm. some in the press uh, and by some on Capitol Hill, just noticing like all these trends seem to come together during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, that's what's happening. We're seeing these extreme heat events. We're seeing uh, more extreme precipitation events. We're seeing all these things that we've loaded the dice for that we would expect. However, the Pacific Ocean is so warm to begin with mm. for this El Nino that mm. the El Nino is actually having a little bit of trouble fully getting started because the atmosphere is not quite responding in the way that it usually does. Mm. Normally you would have cooler water in the Western Pacific and the heating in the Eastern and Central Pacific and the winds respond uh, accordingly. However, right now, pretty much the entire Pacific is incredibly warm. So scientists are kind of looking at this and saying, Oh, well, do we need a better index to, Mm. to capture the new reality of El Nino, which is the El Nino in a changing climate. Mm -hmm. Um, And that may be the case. I think that scientists that I've talked to asking that precise question of, is something new? Like, did we break something fundamental here? Mm. Um, Most of them are are saying no, uh, some more emphatically than others. Um, But every one of them, you know, it's a little bit more hesitant of Mm. a no. Okay, Um, And I, I think that there really is a perception among people that that the climate has to some degree gone off the rails. But if you look at the global trends yeah. since we've been, you know, since we've been tracking it, yeah. going back hundreds of thousands of years, you know, with tree ring data and other types of data, mm-hmm. we're pretty much on the course that we thought we would be. Right. It's not as if there's been some giant spike we mm-hmm. you know one scientist that i talked to deke Arndt, who's at the national centers for environmental information and at NOAA in Asheville, he likens climate change to this uh, to this escalator that basically el nino years you you step up and la nino years you kind of stay put or step down um in terms of the rate of warming right. and what we're seeing right now is a faster rate of warming but an even faster rate of warming than you'd expect so quickly from El Nino. And, and let's El Nino, yeah, it usually has a, a delay of yeah. a couple of months from when it's declared. Right. And, and the climate system seems to be on a fast forward mode. Talk about the degrowth movement, Bill. Well, as you know, there's um, uh, ever since the limits to growth in 1972, I guess, there's been this critique that the world can't keep growing as it has been, uh, that it'll eventually lead to uh, ecological collapse that eventually seems to be coming true. Um, but it is a very strange moment because on the other hand, we understand that we need to increase very, very quickly the amount of green energy and clean energy that we're producing. And that requires growing at least one thing, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and so on. So my piece for The New Yorker was an attempt to square that circle to say, are there ways that we could use this moment of extraordinary um, need for technological change to also produce some social change along the way to build a different kind of world? Uh, we need to make the technological change. And I think we also need to make some really serious social change as we do it towards a different kind of planet. 
the good news is that um, <laughs> we're beginning to see, beginning to see the payoff from some of that technological change. You know, Texas was the center of the heat wave in the U.S. so far this year. This heat dome settled over Texas and the numbers were astounding. There were cities setting new high temperature records 10 days in a row. But the grid did not collapse in Texas and it did not collapse, one analyst after another is telling us, because of there's a lot of solar power on that grid, four times more than there was in just four or five years ago. And that power, uh, not surprisingly, solar panels do well in heat waves. Uh, that power has been enough to keep Texas uh, going. Of course, and as Oliver will make the case in a minute, the irony is that the Texas legislature is busy trying to help the fossil fuel industry and close down its renewable industry. But so far, it's renewables that are doing the job there. And believe me, utilities around the country are starting to watch because they understand that not only is this power cheap, uh, it's truly critical in the world that we're headed into now. I mean, we've been getting reports of hikers and um, tourists who've died of the heat. A woman died in Arizona's Grand Canyon National Park after falling unconscious during an eight-mile hike in over 100-degree Fahrenheit weather. A man found dead in car with two flat tires, Death Valley National Park. I think the recorded temperature the day before was like 126 degrees. You had a a teen and his dad in Texas. Um, And But what about workers around the world as well? Well, I mean, oh, the, the scale of what we're doing is astonishing, and you're very right to point that out. One of the things that the International Labor Organization has told us is that our ability to do work outdoors is already something like 10% degraded, uh, uh, and that it'll be 30%, 40% by mid-century. That is the number of hours that people can be out working. There are lots of reports. China's just come through or is coming through an extraordinary heat wave. And Mexico has been through a heat wave that makes the one in Texas look small by comparison. Uh, people waking up at, at, you know, agricultural laborers waking up at 4 a.m. to get done what they can before it gets too hot to be outside. Uh, we're changing the world in deeply fundamental ways. We're not going to be able to stop. We can't stop global warming at this point. All we can do is try to stop it short of the place where it cuts civilizations off at the knees. And that will require nimbleness and speed that we've really never seen before. As you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have any chance of meeting those targets that you reported on in Paris just eight years ago. By my watch, 2030 is six years and five months away. So the, the need to move fast has never been clearer, I think. Bill McKibben, does expanding renewable energy necessarily lead to a reduction in fossil fuels? Recent data show fossil fuels accounted for 82 percent of worldwide energy supply last year, even as record wind and solar came online. We're going to find out in the next couple of years, and it, it has to. Uh, uh, renewable energy is right now at this takeoff point. It's suddenly becoming substantial, and it has to reduce fossil fuel use if it's to matter. That's why people were so upset when President Biden, who's done so much to sponsor renewable energy, also started approving things like the Willow Oil Project in Alaska or the MVP pipeline in Appalachia or this new string of LNG ports along the Gulf Coast. Um, the, The politicians are getting better at saying yes to renewable energy, but they're no better at saying no to fossil fuel than they were before. And that's because of the extraordinary political power of that industry. They're clearly willing to break the planet. It's why we need more activists and more people out pushing. At Third Act, for instance, we're training up thousands of people to take on the public utility commissions in state after state after state. Uh, uh, These are incredibly important institutions, the public utility commissions, they set rates and help determine what facilities the, the utilities are allowed to build. But they're traditionally been protected by their incredible boringness, and they've been captured in almost every case by the utilities that they're supposed to regulate. So we need lots of people out pushing in places like that, as well as out in the streets or at Wimbledon or wherever it is. If you're you're an older person like me, come join us at Third Act and see what we can do. 
We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... This is not just bad weather. There is a reason for this bad weather, and it is because of a climate that we have polluted and we have made, uh, you know, immeasurably worse year after year. Uh, can you speak quickly uh, to the differences uh, and the ties between weather and climate and about when we might start reporting on all of this more as a crime story than a weather or a climate story, to be frank? You know, I, I've reported on these events in the context of climate change for many years. Mm -hmm. I think there are other outlets that, that do a really good job of it right mm -hmm. now. Um, I think, you know, you can, one area that is really still problematic though, are actually the, the national broadcast networks, mm -hmm. um, you know, including like ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, routinely still airing, um, airing wildfire stories, airing flooding stories mm -hmm. without much of a mention of the climate tie. Right. You're seeing local TV meteorologists uh, making that tie and doing so mm. frequently mm. and doing so on social media as well. And you're seeing a lot of progress uh, in national media. But I think, for example, like you're not going to see the Times, the Post, axios or others write a story at least hopefully axios not not too often you know write a story on this unprecedented heat wave or a you know massive flood event mm -hmm. without a couple sentences on how climate change is making this worse or mm -hmm. how climate change is driving this mm -hmm. because this is all part of the context um but yeah i mean in terms of changing the story, personally, I think every year it becomes more and more of a business story mm -hmm. of how much money is being, how the economy is shifting towards a low carbon economy, who's to gain, who's to lose, what, you know, the fossil fuel industry is doing, what, you know, the clean energy economy looks like. I, I think when you think about it as a crime story, it's it's innovative. And some are doing that at this point, I think. And some are doing that at this point, but um, I think, I think, I think not many. Yeah, you know, I think some yes. are, but not many. Like I, it, it hasn't completely sold me uh, on moving to that. But right. I think you know the the outlet that's closest to that is probably the Guardian. Yes, um, which yes. is looking at it from that framework um, and, and doing so routinely. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting because it's a UK outlet, and if you look at if you look at the three countries in on the planet that have tended to have the most active um, pushback against you know climate science and mm -hmm. science denial movements, it's Australia, the United States, and the UK. Mm -hmm. So it's been interesting that it's it's a UK publication, but it's very out front on this, yep. and in some ways, it's actually led the way. Um, it you has know, kind it, of and, and I'm always frustrated by that because they've done a great job, but I'm always frustrated. And I think, why is a UK paper, you know, reporting on or media outlet reporting on what's going on in the US with these US companies, our politics behind our obscene politics, frankly, behind this, um, you know, and I, I, I do. And I agree with you, by the way, Andrew, that a lot of the mainstream outlets are Far better than they were, but we'll still read a, a story in you know ABC News, and they'll talk about the flooding in the in the Northeast or whatever the uh, weather crisis of the day is, and they won't even mention climate, which uh, just seems obscene to me, along with the obscene politics of it all. Uh, Andrew, I got to get out here shortly, but at this point, given these obscene politics when it comes to lawmakers and the difficulty with the many, not everybody, but many in the corporate media. Um, are we just screwed at this point? Or do you think that efforts by the UN and the, uh, by the US, Joe Biden, the $400 billion investment in climate, that we can actually begin to bend the curve? You know, we have a friend of ours, uh, Dr. Michael Mann, who I, who I know you know of, University of Pennsylvania, one of the most optimistic, uh, climate scientists you'll ever meet. He still argues that there is time to avoid the worst consequences of climate change, but we're going to have to act very quickly, uh, to do it. Um, 
is is that even possible at this point, even if we set aside the obscene politics, if they said, yes, let's do something about this and we could all be in agreement, would we be in time to do so? Or are we just kind of hosed at the at this point? Well, you can look at certain goals. You can look at the 1.5 degree goal in the Paris Agreement. You can look at the 2C goal and have your arguments over whether we're or how, by how much we're going to exceed those targets and then come back down to them. Um, I, I, most climate scientists, most policy uh, people uh, would say, like, keeping it below 1.5 is a pretty tall order. Um, but is there a reason to be hopeful? Is there a reason to think that you have some agency mm-hmm. over this, that, mm-hmm. you, that it's not just your vote, but it's other activities that you can do in your life that can make a difference. All of that is is a very uh, declarative yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the science shows it. Um, you know, one of the, uh, Catherine Hayo, you mentioned, mm-hmm. her appeal to people is to say, the most powerful thing that you can do about climate change is to have a conversation with somebody about it. We, we need to be talking about it more. We yep. need to be learning what your neighbor is doing, whether they're buying an EV or whether they just put up solar panels or whether they're eating less red meat. Mm. Like all these things actually have an impact. It's not just, oh, well, I guess we're screwed and I can't do anything about it. And, and then it's hard to not think that way. Yeah. And I'm a climate reporter right. and... You know, I did a story on on climate anxiety being like a psychological phenomenon. And every psychologist that I went to interview first asked me how I was doing. And I was like, oh, I, I did not expect that question. And I'm not doing well. Um, but, you know, it's hard for me. It's hard for other climate reporters who live this day in and day out. But uh, there are a ton of solutions. There are things that we're already doing. The The, the question really is, Are we going fast enough? Are we implementing this uh, to the degree that it should be? Are there other steps we should be taking? And what happens if we do X, Y, Z? Mainstream media has had a very hard time connecting climate change to oil companies and their decades of pollution and deception about the harms caused by fossil fuels. And when you see coverage of deadly heat waves and wildfire smoke, for instance, there's often no mention of things like how the major oil companies are still spending millions every year lobbying to delay the transition to renewable energy, or how Chevron, the world's most polluting investor-owned oil company, is currently pouring even more money into increased fossil fuel extraction and production after making record profits last year. So it's also not a coincidence that mainstream media is so far behind on this. The fossil fuel industry has a long history of investing in the media in order to manipulate the conversation about our reliance on oil and gas, what needs to be done about it, and what the obstacles really are to addressing climate change. And that goes back to at least the 80s and 90s when oil companies began placing ads and advertorials or ads disguised as news editorials in major outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post that downplayed the reality of climate change. And even today, as we learned from last year's congressional investigations and hearings into the industry's disinformation, companies like Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Shell are still running advertisements that look like articles in the country's biggest news outlets, promoting things like algae and so-called natural gas as climate solutions. So they've really used the veil of journalistic credibility to help disguise their misleading and deceptive advertising for quite a while. And we're seeing that not just with advertising, but with some reporters themselves still failing to name the source of climate inaction and still unable or unwilling to recognize and call out disinformation, sometimes even parroting fossil fuel industry framing about how we can't move off oil too quickly or how big oil is working on ways to solve climate change despite that they're causing it without actually challenging those misconceptions. It's not everyone, and some have gotten better, but it's certainly still a major problem. And I think we saw that last week with this CNBC interview. And what was particularly disorienting about that interview, I think, was just how divorced from reality it felt at this current increasingly dire moment of climate emergency. You know, we have 
all the evidence now of Chevron's duplicity. And while this interview was happening, millions of the rest of us in the United States were trapped inside because of extreme heat or toxic wildfire smoke. That somehow was just not mentioned at all in the interview. There was no mention of the dozens of communities that are suing Chevron and other oil companies to hold them accountable, including one lawsuit filed just a week before the interview took place by Multnomah County in Oregon for a heat dome that killed 69 people a couple of years ago. And last year's House oversight investigation into Big Oil's ongoing disinformation campaign and their efforts to delay climate action weren't mentioned. So there was so much missing context and so many questions that didn't get asked, so much misinformation that went just completely uncorrected. And unfortunately, that's nothing new, but it's really frustrating and infuriating when you have an actual CEO of one of the world's most polluting and powerful companies sitting in the room, getting treated as if he were a legitimate thought partner who's just trying to balance his business priorities with concerns about the climate. It felt like a real wasted opportunity to hold him and other oil executives to account. And as you've outlined, we can understand reasons why that doesn't happen. You point to advertising and that long history of advertorials, and then you go even further back in there interlocking directorates of fossil fuel and corporate media industries. You know, they're on one another's boards. So even though we might call for hard-hitting, tough, interrogative reporting, we do understand the pressures that make that um, unlikely to happen and the pressures that make it so much more comfortable to have the kind of um, jokey, you know, aren't we all in this together conversation that we saw between Sorkin and Worth. I want to follow up on one point, which is that the least, well, <laughs> the least and most our standards have, have dropped so far, but you would hope that when the person you're talking to straight up lies, you know, we're not talking about industry PR deception, but worth himself saying things that were false in this conversation and that Sorkin didn't even follow up on. Yeah. I mean, we heard worth tell some flat out whoppers. Like he said, the clean energy system is only about 1% built. But actually, last year, renewable energy made up 21.5% of total electricity generation in the U.S. And that number could be a lot higher if the oil companies got out of the way. But Sorkin just let that one slide. There were so many other pieces of disinformation and really actually great examples of the many different ways that oil companies lie and mislead in this interview. And I mean, all of those have been exposed in lawsuits, in congressional investigations, journalistic investigations, and academic research. So you would you would hope that Sorkin would have been prepared to to challenge them. And that's, you know, what we really need to see from more journalists going forward. So you touched on this, but it seems like part of the obfuscation in media is suggesting that various weather events have such multiple complex causes that it's just impossible to link them directly to fossil fuels. And you talked about wildfires, which, of course, there's much on the mind right now. And I know that fossil fuel lobbyists are working furiously to make sure that people do not associate those orange skies with fossil fuel emissions. And I can already see the memes like wildfires cause more pollution than fossil fuels, but you aren't fighting trees, you know, like you can already see the desire to have people disaggregate wildfires and particulates from fossil fuel emissions. So what should we be keeping in mind there? Well, there's actually a growing field of what's called attribution science or science that's able to link specific companies' emissions to worsening patterns of extreme weather and even individual weather events. And actually, a recent study published by researchers at the Union of Concerned Scientists found that more than a third of recent wildfires in the western U.S. and Canada can be attributed to 88 specific fossil fuel and cement manufacturing companies. So we're even seeing more and more of the climate lawsuits against big oil citing this type of research as evidence of the damage these companies knowingly caused. Like this last lawsuit in Multnomah County cited scientific studies that said the heat dome would have been virtually impossible without climate change. So these companies can say it's complicated, just like cigarette companies said you couldn't prove smoking caused cancer and that there were so many other potential factors involved. But I think the science overwhelmingly tells us a different story.
I'm curious about your best guess, and I'm, I'm kind of channeling the shock doctrine here, um, for what some industries are going to do to capitalize on the coming chaos, the migration, the insecurity for water and food as it comes. Um, what are some of the things that you could anticipate in terms of exploitation of the fallout from the crises to come? Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of that. And, and you know, Naomi will and the rest of us will keep track as best we can. But I think in the short run, the real example of that is the fact that the fossil fuel industry is doing everything it can to kind of co-opt the effort uh, to cut emissions. So they got a lot of money stuck in the IRA by Joe Manchin for these, you know, uh, carbon sequestration schemes and things like that, stuff that is, is expensive and not particularly helpful and really meets their goal of slowing down what has to happen. And what has to happen because it's what we have, because it's what's affordable, is solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries. Those are the trinity of things that, if applied at large enough scale, might begin to shift the underlying dynamics of the planet's climate system. I have no doubt, Emma, that as the, you know things flood and whatever else, there'll be all kinds of people figuring out uh, how to take rotten advantage of it all. Um, but the, the basic job remains transform our energy system and do it in ways that hopefully in the process will at least somewhat strengthen communities. One of the good things about sun and wind is that they're available, unlike coal and oil and gas, everywhere. And that's a um, that's a help. I, I mean, it does feel like there is a, an understanding in that fossil fuel industry that um, they're ultimately going to lose this battle and they're just basically squeezing every single dollar okay. they can carbon right. capture and stuff like that right so they can keep doing what they, they keep, need in the short they can term keep yeah. burning they've got you know by the, the latest i haven't checked the price of oil in the last couple of weeks but in their reserves of fossil fuel this industry has someplace between 50 and 100 trillion dollars worth of um hydrocarbons that they've cataloged that they have in deposits below the ground that they want to dig up and sell and if we take climate change seriously that $50 trillion stays underground. Um, that's the stakes. That's why uh, That's why they fight so hard. That's why it's well worth purchasing political parties and so on. Um, how much do you, in, in terms of like, you know, where we are at this point and, and from a, as a, as a political matter and, um, and, and I guess getting back to that question of sort of democracy and how, um, are the the failures of democracy um, inhibit our ability to to stop that those interests? How much of this ends up becoming? And I feel like there's been there's always been I think a a, a significant amount of, uh, of 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 writing to this effect. Um, and I, I just read a piece in Jacobin about the, you know research that has shown you know that there is a real class war element to this. I mean, and it's it's obvious in the sense that. As a, uh, as a as as the wealthiest country on the on the planet, we have created far more uh, climate change, as it were. I mean, ultimately, than uh, those less wealthy countries that are going to pay the price even more so. Um, but even within the context of, of of these societies, how much of of how much of a of a class war and an understanding of of this being a you know driven by the rich and wealthy interests, um, uh, how much, how helpful do you perceive that as, as, as an understanding or as a, as a strategy? Well, I mean, first place, the grotesque inequalities of our society are probably the biggest reason why our democracy is so weak and unable to respond to the challenges like this, that you would hope it would. Um, and it's certainly true that rich people use more carbon than, uh, poor people. On average, it's also true that uh, uh, all Amer almost all Americans have figured out ways to use large amounts of carbon compared to the rest of the world. So the uh, uh, you're right to stick it in a global context too, and understand that there are all kinds of inequities here. The um, the the good news, if there is good news, is that um, there are a lot of things a lot of technological answers at this point that are going to be helpful um, um, for everyone. 
if we can get them deployed. Uh, so say a heat pump, which is the necessary technology for getting much more efficient heating and cooling, it's also much better for the people who have them in their homes. They're cheaper to operate. You don't have the boom bust pricing cycle that you do for oil, you know, on and on and on. Um, um, you know, electric vehicles are a great idea because of their help with the climate and e-bikes best of all, but they're also useful because, you know, we, 9 million people a year on this planet die from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel. That's one death in five. In this country, it manifests in hundreds of thousands of cases of childhood asthma a year. And they're obviously concentrated in, you know, poor and vulnerable communities because that's who gets to live next next to refineries and next to highways and so on and so forth. So th this is um, this is the biggest single challenge that uh, our civilizations have yet faced. Can we quickly change our ways of powering our lives in time to avert a pretty much existential catastrophe? And we don't know the answer to that. We know that left to its own devices, the system won't go fast enough, that inertia and vested interest will keep it from responding nimbly. What we're going to have to try and find out is if we can goose that system, continue to goose that system in, in ever larger ways with ever more mass movement. You know, that's what it takes. The first Earth Day in 1970 saw 20 million Americans in the street. That was about 10% of the then population of the U.S. I'd wager that if we could get 10% of the population of the U.S. out in the street, that would probably change the political dynamic here enough to allow us to make considerably faster progress than we're making at the moment, and the same around the world. Do I know how to get that many people out in the street? I don't. We helped organize what have been the biggest demonstrations yet about climate change, you know, 400,000 people in New York in 2014. We helped provide the lot of the logistics work when there were uh, millions of young people out around the world in September of 2019 on school strike and things. But if you ask me, that's what it's going to continue to take we, because our system is not yet exerting anything like maximum effort to deal with this crisis. Does history point to any civilizations, any societies that have been so much better than others in understanding this, in sustainability, and, and, and really in dealing with the reality of this kind of change? It's a great question, Jeff, and I wish I, I, wish I had a sort of pre-packed answer. I mean, I suppose the way I try and answer that is to say my starting point would be what lasts longest. You know, what, 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 what is able to stick around for a really long period of time? And funnily enough, my own areas of research geographically and academically are, are things that we don't spend any time thinking about. So I work on the Byzantine Empire and the Byzantines have, you know, they're, they're sort of a bit part of history. When we think about it, no one really knows where they were, what they did, you know, but they went from around 330 AD until about 40, until 1453. So they were an empire that survived for a thousand years. And that was in a multi-climatic zone, multi-faith, multilingual, multi-regional, you know, very complex society. And it's true, the boundaries in the frontiers changed often, actually, because of pressures of war or economy and so on. But over that thousand-year period, there were also lots of chapters of more, more or less benign or difficult weather conditions and climate patterns. And that system worked for a thousand years. And I guess if you were to ask why, it's number one, the like, like the reason why all states work, and actually the reason why all marriages work when they work, is that they have to be fair. That's the first thing. Justice has to work. You need to have a system which you can't buy it because you're better endowed or you're rich, so you get the judge, you can nobble the judge. And the Byzantines took the Byzantines took that really seriously. Uh, you need to have an ability of a bureaucracy and institutions that can cope with pressure. And that when there is crisis, they know that it's coming, they're ready for it, and they know how to solve it. And again, it doesn't work every time quite the same way in the Byzantine world. But, but there is a real sense of fluidity. And, and partly because it's driven by a fact that they know that the world is always changing. You've got to be scouting the horizon, looking for problems. Funnily enough, some of the other empires that do that really well, are, or states that do that well, are the Ottomans, the, the successors of the Byzantines, the Mongols. They get terrible, but they get a bad rap because of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan and rape and pillage. But hugely sophisticated state that sits across basically the whole of Asia, builds an empire in the course of a couple of decades, and that resilience is the key. It's, it's how do things last for a long time? And, you know, even you guys in the United States, 
we're still sorry that you left us in 1776 <laughs> from my side of the pond. And maybe you want to come back and join us sometime. But it's because despite the, the foibles and the troubles and the difficulties in US history, the United States has been pretty good at navigating change and navigating how to adapt. Despite, the, despite all the kind of things that people get hot under the collar, the US is very fluid in being able to read the tea leaves. And the question is, you know, will, will it be able to stay doing that in the future? And, and finally, Peter, as, as a historian, when you look at this history, some of the things that we, we've just touched on today, and you see the way the world is playing out today with respect to climate, with respect to some of these same issues, talk about the degree of frustration that, that you as a historian must feel at our constant refusal to use history as the guide that it could be. Well, I was, I'll start, you know, I'll start, I'll start with the good news. And uh, I'd say, first of all, you know, we as human beings have long predicted the apocalypse, Armageddon, the end of time, uh, you know, massive overpopulation. And yet here we are in 2023 talking, and there are obviously lots of problems going on in the world, not least new technologies, AI, war in Ukraine, you know, terrible suffering in many parts of the world. But you know, actually, life expectancy in most parts of the world is going up, literacy going up, clean water going up. Um, so there, there's lots of good news. That, that we're here. We, we have been able to cope. There's good news insofar as there's lots of quite low-hanging fruit. If you want to address, it's not just global warming, but the degradation of the natural world where we're drinking too much water. There's not enough to be able to go around. Uh, we expect in the United Kingdom, for example, water consumption is going to go up by 40% in the next seven years. And at the moment, we already have the head of one of our water companies saying, if it's, me- if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down, saying, be, co- be cautious of your water use so that you don't flush every time you use the bathroom. And in a country like mine, where it rains a lot, the idea that we might be short of water should make you think, how does that look in North Africa and the Middle East, where 13 of the 19 most, uh, most water-stressed countries and heat-stressed countries are? What's that going to mean for some of the problems coming towards us or, or towards them, in fact? So I think that there's lots of low-hanging fruit where we can adapt, where we can change, where we can improve efficiency. Uh, here in the United Kingdom, uh, 3 million tons of food are wasted every year on, fa- on farms of edible food. And that works out at 18 million meals per day on average. So improvement of that and making it more efficient could, could make all of the, uh, our world a better place, not least for people who are in, in, in poverty. On the flip side, how do things look? If I, uh, so, and, and looking at the, at the earth as my patient, I say, how does it look? I'd say, look, we had a big report in the UK that came out at the end of last year that said, we're, between us on this earth, we're spending 1.6 times the world's resources. I would go back to what I said right at the very first answer, Jeff, to your first question. A bit like the bank. If you borrow too much, if you spend too much, and you think that you're going to get away with it, you don't you just don't check your bank statements. Uh, at some point, there's a knock on the door, and things come to a come to come to a change. So, it's water is an issue, uh, food production, a warming world where you know whatever the causes of it are, is currently happening at quite a fast rate, and it's just making sure that we think through what we need to do and. You know, I do lots of work with governments around the world and with people who are much, much smarter than I am. I don't know a single person who's not trying to take it seriously. The biggest challenge right now is it looks like a big problem. So the key, as I know as a historian, and I can know as a father, is to break big problems into small problems when I'm talking to my kids. You know, what, what is, what are, how do we do this into 10 different parts and let's solve them one by one? And I think that that's the bit that's kind of missing. And, and I'm pessimistic at the moment because the US has its relationship with China that's very complicated. Russia hasn't done the world any favors in terms of its engagement with you know, attacking innocent Ukraine. We've got lots of dislocations in Latin America as well as in Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's how do you get the whole family of nations around the table to talk? And I think we could do a much better job of that than we're doing at the moment. How would you broadly describe how disaster response is changing? In the past, we divided the world into left a boom and right a boom, and we're agnostic about the boom, right? So it could be the flood, the fire, the terrorist attack, the pandemic, but your your boom is your disruption. Left a boom is prevention and preparation. We're getting ready. We know it's coming or it could come. And then right a boom is response, recovery, and resiliency. That's like that's the stuff you see. Things are getting deployed. You know, communities are are trying to rebound. That used to be viewed as linear, one and done, right? Random and rare. That's the way we thought about. That's the way our entire structure was built. It's a circle. It's a circle now. And so you have to think about the investments you're making in preparation as really being about, can this community recover fast enough? Because it's coming again. We may not know where or when, but that's the kind of stress that's on, uh, that's facing the profession itself as it 
transforms from a profession that used to be, say, your average emergency management officer was a former cop or firefighter. And that's not the communication skills, that's not the outreach skills, that's not the equity skills that we really need uh, for disaster management. Uh, but you're also starting to see it in the policies. Let's just be honest here. We, we've incentivized bad behavior through our disaster management framework, and that's that's what needs to change. Everything else is just going to be Band-Aids. My, um, my mom, Juliet, lives in central New York in the Hudson Valley, and she, she lives in a house where the basement floods. Um, and in fact, the basement did flood this time. She got about six inches of water, which is not terrible. We've seen worse. But once upon a time, I would have thought, Somebody will come and help my mom if she needs help. And nowadays, what's really interesting is in 2023, I think somebody might look at my mom and say, why are you in that house? Why are you still there if this has been going on for 30 years? Do you think we are looking at the role that the individual plays in the boom more and more? Much, much more. Does your mom have flood insurance, by the way? She does. Yep. Oh, good. Okay. So as I just was making sure this idea of, of putting more pressure on communities to behave better is starting to take hold. And that's, I don't mean that as a sort of hostile thing. I mean, it's both good and bad. So on the tactical level, let's say a boom happens. We're not going to leave your mom in her house. But if there's evacuation orders and uh, those evacuation orders are not abided by, by some percentage of the community. Sometimes it's just ideology. Sometimes it's pets. In the last 10 years, I mean, we've seen some tough love from mayors and others simply saying to people, all the advice we can give is get out, get out now. You still have time to leave. Those that are going to stay, uh, it's unfortunate, but they should make some type of preparation to, to mark their arm with a, with a Sharpie pen, put their uh, social security number on it and their name. We've got uh, first responders available, but once it gets bad, we're not going to put their lives in jeopardy and they will not get help. To the bigger issue about, you know, do people stay or go? We have set up a disaster management system that incentivizes bad behavior. It pays people to rebuild where they are. It, it gives them individual assistance as if they alone were impacted. We, we have major events and then, you know, you know, powerful senators can just get lots of money and simply get people cash. Senator, you wrote a letter Friday to the Senate Appropriations Committee asking for disaster relief dollars for desperately needed resources to rebuild Florida communities. After Hurricane Sandy hit northeastern states in 2012, you voted no. How is that strategic thinking? It's just not. But we've put in a system in which, you know, the boom happens, we respond, we save lives, that's a priority, you try to minimize property harms, and then everyone goes after disaster relief as if it's one and done. And the thinking now, has, and the insurance companies are forcing us to think about it, is how do we use that money after a disaster to make this community better? Hmm. I want to say there are some changes. They're really piecemeal, but they are good. There's been changes in in everything from the Inflation Act that allows for more money to be spent to, to mitigation to even the Farm Bill has provisions because, you know, we don't need to call it climate change. Some communities and, and ideologies don't want it to be called climate change. Who cares? Get money out to farmers who are seeing flooding and help them mitigate uh, their harms. Uh, there's been changes to disaster relief that if a community gets uh, uses their money for mitigation at the next disaster, the feds will actually give more rather than less. In other words, you're sort of incentivizing mitigation. And the gamble is these communities will suffer less if they put more into resiliency and, and fortifying structures and getting people out of certain communities. But these are being done piecemeal or they're being driven by insurance or the market. That's no way to think about it, given the numbers and the magnitude of what our communities are facing. And so to that end, if you were put in charge, you can make whatever change you wanted. Where do you think you'd begin? What would be your first move? You know, in my dreams, I would repeal a piece of legislation called the Stafford Act. Pursuant to the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act, or the Stafford Act, FEMA provides public assistance grants to state, tribal, and local governments to assist in their recovery efforts after a disaster strikes. 
basically, its general theory is a disaster happens to a community, that poor community, we feel bad for them, could have been us, right? So let's just pay the money, uh, distribute individual assistance, distribute public assistance, distribute money to the localities and states, and, uh, and write a check, and let's get them back to normal. Okay, so that worked. But now it doesn't work, right? And so what I would do is, is rethink how we're paying for the last disaster to prepare us for this disaster, condition that money, right? Dear community, dear individual homeowner, we're not doing this anymore. We don't care your politics. We don't care anything. Basically, you can have a check if you do X, Y, and Z and what, whatever those conditions are. And we, we know what they are. If you live in a fire uh, area, we know what kind of roof you have to build. If you live by the water, we know uh, what kind of fortification you need. And these are the kinds of efforts at each home level, at each community level, that will change the incentive structure. We have to incentivize, essentially, resiliency. We don't do that now because we still are in a mind frame of these disasters are random and flukish, and we're just going to brace ourselves until the next one. These are images of some of the oldest cities from around the world, and they all have something in common. They were built with human connection in mind. Narrow streets, buildings close together, homes mixed with workplaces and shops, central public spaces. Now look at many of today's American cities, and you'll notice features that are quite different. Wide roads, houses built far away from workplaces and shops, parking lots, exhaust. These are cities built for cars. Cities face monumental challenges in the 21st century. Climate change, maintaining human health, and social equality. So as we look to build the next generation of cities, what can we learn from the past? We don't actually need to go that far back to see how cars have altered the American cityscape. If you look at, at, at film of the early 20th century, you see this amazing ballet of streetcars and horses and buggies and tons of people walking. This is Jeff Speck. He's a trained architect and certified city planner. That really changed in the middle of the 20th century when someone decided that streets were for moving vehicles only, for moving cars only and trucks, um, and they were no longer social spaces that belonged to everyone. A large amount of subsidies at the federal, state, and local level go to building car-related infrastructure versus um, other forms of transportation. This is Adrian Salazar, and he's the policy director at the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, a member of the Green New Deal Network. That's because uh, as soon as cars became widely accessible to people who lived in America, the automobile industry started to leverage its power to try to influence city planning. And it has been designed in policies, in zoning laws, uh, that actually make these things uh, farther apart from each other, where residential zones are separate from commercial zones. And that has produced a drastic inequity in the way that people move about. One piece of legislation was the Federal Highway Act of 1956, which created the interstate highways that we still use today. Highways impacted American cities negatively in two principal ways. First, they made it very easy for folks to abandon the city. And then secondly, is that they were typically run through poor and working class communities, typically communities of color. They destroyed neighborhoods, they destroyed lives. And as cars multiplied, so did the air pollution they expelled and the emissions they contributed to climate change. In the United States, the transportation sector is actually one of the largest sectors contributing to greenhouse gas emissions in the country. And for us to be able to address those emissions means rethinking how we design our cities and how we live in them. When I'm working on a new place or trying to make an existing place more walkable, I look at four things. Is the walk useful? Is the walk safe? Is the walk comfortable? And is the walk interesting? And if you can do all four of those things together, you've created the most sustainable kind of place. Fixing the damage that was done to America's cities may require government investment in current solutions, like public transit and modern road designs. So what can we do? 
It's going to take a just transition of our entire economy that leaves nobody behind and investing into a regenerative economy, an economy of care that uplifts people. And the Green New Deal to me is really a vision of a suite of policies that set the direction towards that future to address the climate crisis, to address our crises of inequality, of racial injustice, of economic uh, uh, underinvestment in communities. That's why collective power and working together and organizing is so important because it amplifies our power and it, it shows that the vision of the world that we're fighting for has movements behind it. Increasing access to public transit and active transportation, like walking and biking, may be a key part of addressing climate change and building the next generation of cities. And by giving cities back to the people, they will emphasize what past cities used to, human connection. We've just heard clips today, starting with the broadcast in two parts, giving some updates on the climate news. Democracy Now! spoke with Bill McKibben about the urgent action that's needed to address the climate. Counterspin looked at the role of media in helping spread fossil fuel industry propaganda. The Majority Report also spoke with Bill McKibben about the fight against the financial incentive to continue burning fossil fuels. Who, What, Why took an historical perspective on adaptability being the key to sustainability. Today Explained reassessed disaster preparedness for the future, and Vox looked at a vision for more sustainable cities built around the needs of people, not cars. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Counterspin, explaining the benefits of power utilities being publicly owned for the public good. I advocate that PG&E should be transitioned into public ownership because it can eliminate some of those warped incentives that are associated with monopoly investor-owned utilities that operate our energy system. And we can move towards a situation in which a public good is provided by a public service. And then they heard a part of the speech AOC gave while reintroducing the Green New Deal legislation earlier this year. When it came time to the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we started to fight. We said we are not going to take crumbs and we're not going to settle for that, that we need bold, big climate action and we need it now. And that fight resulted in the largest piece of climate legislation in American history. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Now to wrap up, I just want to share a hopeful perspective from a climate scientist who wrote the article, Climate Crisis, Four Reasons for Hope in 2023. The four pillars of his argument are, one, the reality of climate change is sinking in. Two, climate action across the U.S. is now very real. Three, the multiple economic benefits of clean energy are becoming too obvious to ignore. And four, climate action is increasingly designed to be equitable and just. Obviously, record temperatures, wildfires, and storms were going to have a big impact on polling responses about the climate. This can be frustrating for those of us who have been advocating for action for decades, specifically to avoid these disasters. But nonetheless, there were always going to be those who needed to be hit in the face by reality before they were going to take it seriously. So better late than never. Welcome to the party. Polling now shows that people are overwhelmingly in favor of taking action on climate change, regulating CO2 as a pollutant, and so on. Secondly, he writes about how coalitions of, quote, states, cities, corporations, and universities are leading the way in showing how the transition to a clean energy future can happen, end quote. Now, if you're not part of those organizations, it can be a lot harder to notice these kinds of changes happening, especially when compared to noticing the change in the climate. But change really is in the air in more ways than one. Uh, on the economic benefits argument, Back when I worked at a climate change nonprofit in the late aughts, we were looking forward to a time that the price of renewable energy would drop below the cost of fossil fuels. I mean, it was inevitable as fossil fuels get harder and more expensive to reach and renewables only have the setup and maintenance costs to then harvest energy 
you know, in an ongoing way for next to nothing, right? Once those setup costs hit scale enough to come down in price, there was going to be no going back. Now we are past that point that I once looked forward to, and none of the underlying assumptions have changed. Renewable energy will continue to be the obvious choice for economic, not just climate reasons going forward. And finally, something that many of us have been advocating for for decades is becoming more mainstream. I probably learned about environmental racism in about 2007 when we were campaigning to, quote, green the ghetto. It was a movement to focus on putting green jobs like solar installation and efficiency retrofits of existing buildings in traditionally overlooked neighborhoods, the types of places where 60 years earlier, they likely cut a community in half by building a freeway through it. The same dynamic plays out on the international level as well. The less affluent countries around the world often contribute very little to the problem of climate change, but are regularly on the front lines of the impacts. This is now a mainstream element of climate negotiations, having more affluent countries shoulder a greater share of the burden of the clean energy transition in the name of equity and justice. The bottom line is that the impacts of climate change are easier to see than the movement against it. Kind of like how trolls and bullies are easier to come across on the internet than the thoughtful people who don't bother to wade into comment sections. It can give you a false and depressing impression of the state of the world. So better to get involved and see the progress that's happening firsthand. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about today's topic or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. You can join them now during our membership drive, and it would be greatly appreciated. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.